Hey, First Family, it is my joy to introduce you again to Alan Parr. As we have prayed about who was it that we would bring in to speak into our church during my sabbatical, Alan Parr was at the top of our list. He has invested in our community as Teacher of the Year for McKinney ISD, was a worship pastor at one community, one of our sister churches in our city, and started a ministry online through YouTube called The Beat that I have been learning from for years. He's a student of God's Word, a graduate from DTS. He loves the gospel, recently releasing a book on how the world can sometimes distort the true gospel of what Jesus has done for us. I can't wait for him to speak into you. One last thing. I've watched as Alan has loved his neighbors in our school and in our community. I'm blessed that he's going to speak into loving our neighbors this month. Well, good morning, First McKinney. It is uh, such a pleasure to be back. I'm glad to be back. And um, but I do have a light little bone to pick with you all. Uh, you guys know where I'm going. A couple weeks ago, I told you that I was not going to be here last week because I was heading back to Pittsburgh for the season opener of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And uh, yeah, well, hey, it didn't work out well for us. And uh, we, we, we lost. We didn't just lose. We, we, got, we got beat bad, all right? And uh, I, I asked you guys to pray. I asked you guys to pray. And... You know, the fact that we lost so bad, I can only conclude one of three things. Either A, you didn't pray, all right, so I forgive you. We'll talk about that today, all right, but uh, uh, either you didn't pray or you prayed, but you didn't have enough faith, all right? Didn't have enough faith to trust God that my Steelers are going to pull out the victory. Or even worse, you know, you, you heard my sermon from a couple weeks ago, maybe you didn't like my style, didn't like what I had to say, and you saw that I said I wasn't going to be back because I'm going to still be in mourning if my Steelers lose. And maybe you prayed that the Steelers would lose. That would be even worse. And so, uh, but either way, I am, I'm here, all right? I'm glad to be here with you today. And uh, in all seriousness, I'm excited to continue on in our series, Go Love Your Neighbor. And uh, today we're going to talk about a checklist for spiritual growth. And we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 18. Very, very practical passage of Scripture and um, a checklist for spiritual growth. I don't know about you, but if you're kind of like me, I love to-do lists. I love checklists. It just makes me feel like I'm progressing. It makes me feel like I'm getting some things done. I'm, I'm accomplishing some things. And so today, as we go through this message, uh, I want us to mentally or physically on a piece of paper just start to Make a check mark and say, okay, I'm doing well in this area, or, oh, you know what, man, I need to, con you know, improve a little bit in this particular area. And so what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture is that Paul is going to vividly outline for us three very essential types of relationships that you and I need to be intentional about fostering. We need to be intentional about fostering these three types of relationships. But before we get into those relationships, as always, we want to provide a little bit of context, a little bit of background to the book of 1 Thessalonians. So the Apostle Paul, uh, you can read about this in the book of Acts, he would often go on what's called missionary journeys. 
And that's just a fancy word for missions trip. Many of you here have been on missions trips before. And so that's how Paul and the other apostles would spread the gospel. And so on Paul's second missions trip, he visited a city called Thessalonica. And so he is there, and uh, the way Apostle Paul worked is that he didn't spend too much time in one particular area, and he wasn't able to be in all places at all times, and so he would pastor these churches remotely by sending them letters, encouraging them, and letting them know what he wanted them to know and different things of that nature. And this was no different. Uh, He visited Thessalonica and planted that church on a second missionary journey, and then he wrote a couple of follow-up letters that we know to be 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And so I believe that if Paul were here today, if we were kind of, this is, by, by the way, modern Greece, and I believe if, if Paul were here today, he'd probably do it through YouTube, kind of similar to what I'm doing, right? Because, you know, I'm not able to pastor churches or anything like that, but I'm able to try to reach as many people as I can with videos, and he did it by letters, right? And so um, oftentimes when Paul would write these letters, he would be writing to try to fix some of their beliefs. Give you a perfect example. Uh, when he started churches in Galatia, and by the way, Galatia is not a city, it's a province where the several cities are, uh, he would go in there and he would teach the people what they needed to know about the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith alone. But oftentimes, there'd be another group of Jews called the Judaizers, and they would come in after Paul had left that location and teach the Christians there, hey, yeah, you know, it is salvation by grace through faith, but in order to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. You have to get circumcised. You have to obey certain dietary restrictions. You have to do these things. And if you do that and exercise faith in Jesus Christ, then you can be saved. And so uh, sometimes Paul would have to write and say, no, 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 no. How? I'm shocked that you're, you're, you're quickly um, um, being led astray by another gospel that really isn't another gospel. That's the book of Galatians. He was writing to fix their beliefs. But then in other times, he'd write letters to fix their behaviors. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, it's very clear that that church had a lot of things going on. They were suing each other. Uh, one man was having a, an affair with his Uh, his father's wife, and all sorts of things were going on. So he was writing to fix their behaviors. And so that brings us to the background to the book of 1 Thessalonians. There was one common misunderstanding or common uh, belief that they had at that church that Paul had to clear it up. It involved the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so many of the people in Thessalonica, they were very, very worried and concerned that some of their loved ones who had died would one day miss out on the second coming of Christ. They were like, oh, what's going to happen? I mean, if we're alive and he comes, we'll experience it. But what happens to my my loved ones who they've gone on? Are they going to miss out on this beautiful, glorious moment when Jesus comes back? And Paul's like, no, let me clear that up, right? So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he writes this, something that we should all celebrate. And now, dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, we want you to know what will happen to the believers uh, who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. This is often read at funerals. He says, I don't want you to grieve like people who don't have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. 
We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. That's the order. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be rapturo, the Latin word from which we get our our doctrine, the rapture, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. What a beautiful moment that we, hopefully all of us, will experience one day when the Lord comes back and we are able to see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the clouds and thank him for all that he's done for us. And so the idea behind 1 Thessalonians is really in light of the fact that Jesus is going to be coming back one day, how should we as Christians live? And he gives all sorts of practical wisdom on how to do that. And once again, we're going to look at three essential relationships that we need to foster if we're going to be intentional about living in light of the return of Jesus Christ. The first relationship, and I see why Pastor Sam had me preaching this one. <laughs> it'd be a little bit more awkward if, if, it'd be a little awkward if he had to preach this, but um, the, the first one is the relationship between the sheep, that's us, and the shepherds, the pastors, the elders, those who are over this church. And Paul gives us some very, very practical advice on how we should relate to those who are in spiritual authority over us. As a matter of fact, in this passage of Scripture, let's read it just a moment, just these two verses. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So you see in these two verses, there's actually three responsibilities that the shepherd has to the sheep. And then there's also three responsibilities that we as sheep need to have to our shepherds. Let's break it down. The responsibility of the shepherds. The first thing it says that they should labor. (laughs) All right. It says, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you. In other words, Paul is saying that there should not be any lazy pastors, any lazy shepherds. He's saying they need to work. They need to be some of the hardest working people in the church. Matter of fact, the Greek word here for labor actually literally means this, to work to the point of utter exhaustion. That is a pastor's role. That's what God has called the shepherds too, is to work for the congregation. And when you think about the work of a pastor, it's a lot of work. Listen, for for me to just put together a sermon normally takes about 20 to 25 hours. But most pastors say that's about 10 to 15% of what they do every week, right? Putting together sermons and, and, and doing weddings and funerals and all the while trying to keep their family intact and care for their families and be a loving husband and a present father and all of these things. And so the first responsibility that any shepherd has to their sheep is to work hard and to labor. But the second responsibility, it says here, that they are to be over you in the Lord. 
In other words, they are to exercise spiritual wisdom, spiritual authority. They are to govern the church. They are to be the CEO of the church, if you will, and make sure all the affairs are in order. That's another responsibility of the pastors. And then there's a third responsibility that maybe many of them probably don't like, and many of us may not like. (laughs) It says that they are to admonish you. That's the job of a pastor, to admonish us. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word literally means this, to counsel about the avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. (laughs) The pastor's job is to let us know, hey, you're going down the wrong path. Or this is what I encourage you to do to avoid going down the wrong path. Or if you're going down the wrong path, you need to stop doing this, right? Now, we may not like hearing that, but that's what God, through the Apostle Paul and other apostolic writers, have called these pastors to do. Now, before we move into our responsibility as sheep to the shepherds, I really just want to bring you in on the back kind of the, the, uh, what many pastors may be dealing with on the back end that many of us as sheep have no idea. Because hopefully with these statistics and this context, it will hopefully shed light on why it's so important for us as sheep to honor and appreciate and respect our pastors. The current state of pastors from A particular survey, 75% of pastors report being extremely stressed or highly stressed. 75%. 80% believe their pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. And 33% said it was an outright hazard. This is what our pastors, our shepherds, are dealing with. 70% say they are grossly underpaid for the work that they do. The average salary of a pastor is $39,000 a year. No disrespect for anyone who makes that, but that's not nearly enough to provide for a family in this day and age. Uh, 70% of pastors say they have a lower self-esteem now than when they entered ministry. Wow. 70% say they constantly fight depression. These are real numbers, real people, real pastors. 50% feel so discouraged that they would leave their ministry if they could, but they can't find another job because this is all they know. This is what their training has prepared them for. And then finally, 40% of pastors report a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. It's a very difficult job to be a pastor. With that in mind, how should we as sheep best honor our shepherds? Well, it says right here that we should recognize those who labor among you. Now, earlier I said that the pastors should be some of the hardest working people in the church. I also believe that they should be the most appreciated as well. And in this context, I, I, I don't believe I'm going too far above the scriptures to say that that means that we need to make sure that our, our shepherds, our pastors are compensated well for the work that they do. We are to recognize them. Now, I always like to make sure that my messages are very practical. So what are some ways that we do that? Because I could tell you to go, go recognize your pastor or go appreciate your pastor. But what does that mean tangibly? What are some ways we can do that? Well, let me give you a few of them. First of all, we can pray for them. So as we're checking off, Right? Remember, it's a checklist for spiritual growth. As you're checking off, I want you to ask yourself this simple question. 
how often do I pray for my pastor or my pastors or their families? Uh, how, How often do we do that in our prayer time? Here's another one. Simple ways we can encourage our shepherds. Write them encouraging letters. Write them encouraging letters. I can tell you from being a YouTuber, we get a lot of negative (laughs) I get a lot of negative messages on Instagram and comments of the videos and Facebook messages and emails. We get enough of that. But what we don't hear enough of are encouraging. How wonderful would it be if this church flooded Pastor Sam and some of the other pastors who work hard here with wonderful handwritten letters to encourage them on how much we appreciate what they're doing? How about serving in the church? shouldn't be that the pastors have to hire everybody on staff to do the work. In the early church, it was volunteer-led. It was volunteer-based. So we can lighten our pastors and our shepherds' load by volunteering, by getting involved, by using our spiritual gifts, by serving in the church. Here's another one. Giving generously is a way we can appreciate our shepherds. Encouraging their families, praying for their spouses, encouraging them, maybe bringing them a meal, Um, offering to take their kids while they go out on a date on Friday night, something like that. And then finally, speaking well of the church. It's nothing worse than having people who are members of a church and then they, they go out and they're spreading negativity about a church. These are some practical ways we can appreciate our shepherds. So our responsibility is to recognize them also to esteem them very highly, not just highly, but very highly. And then the third responsibility that the sheep have to the shepherd is to be at peace among ourselves. In other words, not be the ones responsible for strife, for divisions, for factions, for church splits, for gossip, for any of those things. And I'm going to go on a limb here, and I hope I'm not I'm just going to say this in a loving way, but if you're a member here or you're a member of another church and you are not able to get behind the vision or the visionary of the church to the point where it's causing you to speak negatively about it and to create strife and not be able to initiate peace in the relationship and at the church, it might be time to pray about going to another church. Because God has called us to support our shepherds by being at peace amongst ourselves. So the first essential relationship that we have to foster is between sheep and shepherd. But the second essential relationship that I see in this text is between sheep and sheep. And this is where it's going to get really, really practical because this is talking about our relationship with our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family members, relatives, people here at church, people in our small group. And Paul has several things here to say about how sheep should engage and interact with other sheep. He says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So let's break this apart now. All right, the first thing that we see is that it takes all of us. Notice here that the Apostle Paul addresses all of us. He doesn't say, church leaders, this is your responsibility. 
He says, brethren. Because sometimes that's important. That's an important word to pay attention to. Uh, because sometimes we can think that these responsibilities should be left up to the pastors of the church. But no, Paul says all of us as sheep are responsible for doing this with other sheep. So what are some things that we need to do? Well, it says here we need to warn those who are unruly. Unruly. Now that word unruly, it literally was used during the time that the Bible was written to refer to a soldier who was out of his ranks who was not in line with his commanding officer, a soldier who was out of step with some of the other soldiers. He, he, he just got out of, out of line. And so it's our responsibility as Christians to lovingly warn those that we see going astray. Maybe they're in a relationship that they shouldn't be in, either single or married, and we know some single people, and they're getting into a relationship that they should not be getting into. We just... Pray for them and just watch them? No. This says we need to warn them. Hey, you're going down a path. This person is not right for you. This is, this is a relationship that's not going to end well. Or maybe they're married and they're in a relationship and they're starting to get a little bit too comfortable with somebody who's not their spouse. As a friend, what do we do? We need to warn them. Or maybe uh, they're involved in some sort of illicit behavior of some sort. Or, or maybe they're just not walking with Jesus on a regular basis. Or maybe we see them not loving their wife or respecting their husband in the way that the Bible says. As friends, as sheep, interaction with, acting with other sheep, it's our responsibility to warn those who are unruly. Now, how do we do that? We need to make sure that when we do it, we do it in love. Because oftentimes, if we don't use the right tone of voice, if we don't choose the right time to do it, people don't receive it well. And that's why Paul says we need to speak the truth, but we need to make sure that we do it in a loving tone. So it doesn't come off as judgmental, it doesn't come off as I'm up here and you are down here. So not only are we responsible for warning those who are unruly, but it also says that our responsibility is to comfort the faint-hearted. Now, I love this, I love the Greek language in general, but I love this, this particular word. It's a beautiful Greek word for faint-hearted. It's a compound word, two words come together. The first is the prefix oligo. And oligo is simply a prefix that means small or little. And then the other part of the word is psuchos. You're familiar with that word, psychology, it's from where we get our English word, uh, psyche. It means soul. And so when you put those two words together, the word is oligopsukos. And it literally means small soul, little soul. It's a beautiful word that, 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 sh- that describes how some people feel. They feel like their soul is just little right now. Their soul is, is small. They don't have hope. Uh, they, they've lost hope that their marriage is ever going to get any better. They've lost hope that their finances are ever going to get any better. They've lost hope that their children are going to return to the Lord and they've been wayward or whatever it is. Maybe uh, they're dealing with some sort of addiction that they can't get out of. And they've lost hope that they're ever going to get victory in that particular area. We are surrounded by people who have small souls, have little souls. They've given up on life. They've given up on hope. They've gotten to the point where they don't believe anymore. And our responsibility as sheep among sheep is to comfort them, to encourage them, 
to put courage back in and say, hey, you can do this. Hey, you are going to overcome that. Hey, you keep praying for your kids. Hey, you keep trusting God that your, your wife or your husband is going to change. You keep staying in there. This is what God's called you. That's our job, to comfort those who are faint-hearted. Now, another one, I, don't, I want to focus a little bit more on these last two. But it says here that we are to be patient. Now, my wife is here, and so is my daughter. So I, they can tell you that I struggle with this. I don't have problems uh, admitting that I struggle with this. Even my six-year-old daughter will tell you I struggle sometimes with this. All right? Uh, it says that we are to be patient with all. Now, I believe that there are two aspects of patience when it comes to sheep with sheep that, we, that I think is present in this verse. The first is, I'll, I'll call that short-term patience. That's being patient with people in that moment, in that moment, right? Um, and so uh, patience, let's look at that word. It's another beautiful Greek word. It's a compound word again. Macro, we know what that word means. Macro means long or large. It's contrasted with micro, small. All right, and then thymio, which means heat. So when you put that word, those two words together, those compound word is macrothumio, which means long heat, which means it should take us a long time to get heated is basically what the word is saying, right? No more short fuses, right? It's the same word that's talking about God being long-suffering with us, right? He, it takes him a long time. He doesn't deal with us according to our sin. It takes him a long time to get heated, right? See that in the Old Testament with his relationship with the Israelites. Hundreds of years. And that's how we're supposed to be. Now, I will say this. <laughs> um, I'll give you an illustration how I, I, I failed at this, like, really bad. All right, so I'm going to indict myself on this example. My wife and my kids, my son is not here today, but uh, we went to San Diego a few months ago, took our kids to Legoland, and we had a good time. And we, we took them where we were trying to go to the beach, all right, we were trying to get to the beach, and time is running short. We had a whole bunch of things going on, and, uh, and we had some plans later on that evening. And so we were trying to get to the beach, and I'm looking at the clock because I'm like, time, time, time is my thing. Like, I want to make sure I'm on time, right? And so uh, my wife said that she needed to go into the store to get a couple of things. <laughs> Brothers, you know how that is, all right? I need to go to the store to get a couple of things. I'll be there for a couple of moments. So I'm like, okay, no problem. Sure. So I'm in the car with the kids, and I'm thinking she's going to go in and get like a little pail for the sand or something like that. So she's in there 10 minutes. I'm like, okay, no problem. 15 minutes. Oh, nah, okay. 20 minutes. I'm starting to get a little restless. 25. 30 minutes. 30 minutes, and I'm, okay, all right, look, we got to get to this beach, or this whole trip is wasted. Not my finest moment, no judgment, please. I took the kids out of the car. We went into the store. My wife is in line, and in front of everybody, I say, honey, what are you doing? You've been in here 30 minutes. We got to go to the, uh, we got to go to the beach. And I, I just, I felt horrible right afterwards because it's embarrassing. We're in the store and I'm, I'm you know, raising my wife, my, my, my voice of my wife and, and my daughter's there, my son is there. And later my daughter's like, you need to work on your patience, daddy. <laughs> That's exactly what she said. She said, daddy, you need to work on your patience with mommy. And I say, you know what? I do, I do, I do. Now I can say that that's not regularly how I, I do things, but in that moment, 
I struggled with my patience. I struggled with patience, and God is calling us to be macrothumio. That was microthumio. That wasn't, that wasn't what, what God had called us to. All right, so not only long, short-term patience, but long-term patience. And this involves patience when we're waiting for people to change. I'm sure you can probably think of somebody in your life right now who you've been waiting that they would change. If you're married, look straight up ahead. Don't look, don't, don't, don't nudge. Don't look. Yeah, I've been waiting for you. Yeah, yeah, he's talking. Don't do that. Okay, we got to go home to our spouses. And All right. So, uh, yeah, so it's talking about waiting for people to change. And sometimes it takes a long time. All right, there's some things that my wife been waiting for me to change. There's some things that I've been waiting for her to change in the eight years we've been married, right? And God is calling us to have macrothumia, to, to be patient while people are trying to change. Matter of fact, Dr. Tony Evans says it this way in his commentary. We must be patient with people who are sinning and with people who are suffering, with people who want to change and with people who do not. God is calling us to be patient as we have these sheep-sheep relationships. And the final one we'll look at in this text is our responsibility to forgive other sheep. Notice it says here, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. I want to talk just briefly about forgiveness because I think sometimes forgiveness can be one of those things that is very difficult for us to understand, and it's very mis. We can be uh, we can have misunderstandings about forgiveness. So, first thing, forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation, and I think that that is a barrier sometimes for us to forgive because we think, man, if I have to forgive you, which if that means I have to be in relationship with you again, then. I'm not going to forgive because I don't want to be in relationship with you. Forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. Matter of fact, reconciliation is not always possible. How do you forgive someone who has passed away? Reconciliation is not possible in that instance, right? So that's not forgiveness. Well, forgiveness also can take time. Sometimes we think, well, the, the, the Bible has commanded us. We need to forgive, like, you know, forgive as, as you've been forgiving. Yes, that's true. But sometimes the hurt and pain of what someone has done to you, it takes some time, and it's okay to work through the process of forgiveness. Here's another one. Forgiveness does not mean the absence of pain. Oh, man, sometimes we think that maybe I haven't forgiven this person because what they did to me still hurts. Can I give you an example in the Old Testament? Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament and his brothers? His brothers sold him into slavery, and there's this beautiful picture. I know that Joseph had, you can look at the names of his children and tell that he forgave his brothers, but there's this beautiful scene where after he hasn't seen his brothers for, I think, 13, 14 years or so, he's now reunited with his brothers, and as soon as he sees his brothers, he has to leave the room and weep. What does that tell you? That the pain of what his brothers did to him by selling him into slavery, it still hurts. It still hurts. And so, if you are struggling to forgive someone, it may mean that the pain of what they did to you is going to remain forever. Forgiveness is the absence of bitterness. It's, it's, you know you've forgiven someone when you can get to the point where you are no longer bitter towards them. That the sound of their name doesn't make you 
angry anymore and you start to pray for their well-being and you're happy when good things happen to them. You're no longer bitter towards them. I had to work through this in my own life. There was someone that was very, very, very important to me. I highly respected this particular person. And they did some things that just, it hurt. And I've always found myself as somebody who's been easy to forgive people. I've never really struggled with this to the most part. It took me a couple years to work through fully forgiving this particular person. So give yourself time to work through that. The last thing I'll say about forgiveness is this, and this is a connection I don't think a lot of people make, is that forgiveness is actually faith. Did you know that? Did, did, did you ever think about that? It takes faith to actually forgive someone. Because to forgive someone, you have to say, God, I trust that you saw what was done, and you are going to handle this person way better than I could ever handle it. You have to put that person in the hands of God and relinquish revenge and control in your own life. So as we talked about these relationships, why don't you start checking off, how am I doing in my relationship with my shepherds? Am I appreciating them tangible ways? How am I doing in the area of warning those who I know are going astray? How am I doing in encouraging those around me who are faint-hearted? How am I doing in my patience, long-term and short-term? I know I need to uh, work on that. Um, and then how am I doing in this area of forgiveness? But now as we move on to the third and final relationship, is the relationship between the sheep and the Savior. The sheep and the Savior. Now let's read this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Whoa, Paul. Wow. How in the world are we supposed to do that? That seems impossible. I mean, like, rejoice always? Like, well, let's look at it. Let's see what he might mean here. Rejoice always. So the idea of joy, and I think the reason why we find this difficult to do is because we often confuse joy with happiness. Happiness goes up and down. Like last week, I was not happy when my Steelers were getting beat 30 to 7. I wasn't happy about that. All right? I was not happy about that. I spent all this money to go all the way to Pittsburgh to see my team get whooped. I wasn't happy, all right? But underneath the ups and downs of life, there's this joy that's under the surface that supersedes the ups and downs. And I think that's what Paul is saying. Joy is a sense of gratitude that undergirds the ups and downs of life. Once again, I want to be practical. So what are some reasons why we should always rejoice no matter what's going on in our lives? Well, we can rejoice in God's plan, his plan of salvation, that he would love you and I enough to come and pay the price of our sin so that you and I don't have to pay the price of our sin, that he paid it for us. Man, that alone should be enough for us to, no matter what's going on in our lives, to always rejoice. We can rejoice in God's provision <clears throat> when you think about your home, you think about your children, you think about uh, your singleness, when you think about your finance, when you think about how God has provided for you. We just sang the song, great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, your hand has provided. We can rejoice in the providence of God, doors that he's opened in your life, that you're like, man, that, that had to have been God. God, thank you for doors he's closed in your life. God, thank you for not allowing me to go through this when I thought this was the best plan. 
We can rejoice in the providence of God. We can rejoice in the protection of God. God, thank you for protecting me in this particular situation. We can rejoice in the patience of God. Oh, God, thank you as the psalmist said in Psalm 103 that you have not dealt with me according to what my sins deserve. Thank you, Lord, that I know I've made mistakes in my life. I've made wrong decisions. I've gone left when you told me to go right. I've done some things that I'm ashamed of. I've done some things that nobody else will ever know about. I'll carry it to my grave. But thank you for your macro to me. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your long suffering. And all of these are reasons why we should rejoice always. But there's some hindrances to joy. First of all, sin. If you, if you, want, to, uh, if you want to erode the joy, live in sin. Because I've often said it this way. When you become a Christian, God will allow you to sin. He just won't let you enjoy it anymore. <laughs> That's what happens. You can sin still, but it just won't, you won't be able to enjoy it anymore. All right? So sin will steal your joy. Ingratitude will steal your joy. And here's another one that's huge. Comparison will steal your joy. You know what's really bad about this? Social media is a breeding ground for comparison because it's set up to compare your behind the scenes with somebody else's highlight reel. That's all it is. All you see is that couple, yeah, they're at the beach with their beautiful family or, you know, they're at the pool in the backyard and everything looks perfect. But you don't see, like, the argument they had. You don't see their kids are depressed, their kids are whatever. You don't see any of that. But you see that in your life, but you don't see what's going on in their lives. And you think, oh, I wish my husband was like that. Look what he did for his wife. And you know that. You know how it is. Oh, you know, he, he brought her roses at work. Oh, he must, I wish my husband, I wish I had one like, yeah, okay. Right? And we start comparing. And comparison is the thief of joy. Pray without ceasing. What in the world? How do we do that? Are we supposed to walk around all day? Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. We run into stuff. I mean, like, what are you, how are you supposed to do that? Well, I love what J.B. Lightfoot says. Prayer is not in the moving of the lips, but in the elevation of the heart to God. So in that sense, we should always have a posture of prayer where we're remaining in constant communication with God on a regular basis. Now, how do we do this practically? There's a couple ways. Well, confession. We probably always have something we need to confess to God, whether it's something we've said, something we've done, or something we've thought. Or maybe something we haven't done, a sin of omission. Here's another one, petition. Sometimes we're nervous and we say, oh, you know, I don't know if I should go to God and ask him for what I want because that's selfish. No, the Bible actually invites us in Philippians 4 that we should bring all of our petitions and prayers to God. Let him know what you want. Whether he gives it to you, that's up to him, but at least you bring it to him and let him know what you want. Intercession. Now, after I say this, probably no one in here will ever ask me to pray for them. But I will say this. I, I, I can't tell you how many times that I've said that I'm going to pray for somebody, and I don't pray for them. It's kind of like the Christian cliche things to do. You know, well, how are you doing this week? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, my husband's kind of struggling with this, that, and the other. And, oh, okay, well, man, I'm going to pray for you. It's kind of like the way we close out a, a conversation when we want to get out of the conversation. Okay, well, I'm going to pray for you, but i got to go. And how often do we actually follow up and pray for them? Sometimes we do, but sometimes we don't. We can remain in constant prayer by just when we think about people, just making sure we're intentional about praying for them. And how about gratitude? Just thanking God for what he's done in your life. Now, I say it this way. I may not pray for very long, but I don't go very long without praying. 
Because sometimes we can get intimidated by prayer and think, well, if I don't have 60 minutes, I'm, why do I pray? No, I think this, is, this statement here really highlights what we should be doing, just staying in a constant state of prayer with God. And then finally, give thanks in all circumstances. Well, how am I supposed to do that? How in the world am I supposed to thank God when I lose my job? Well, once again, I think James helps us with this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. Wait, wait, now Paul, James is saying the same thing. What? Okay, wait. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. This is so misunderstood. You don't praise God for the job that you lose. You praise God for what it's going to produce in your life as it relates to your relationship with God, how it's going to grow your faith, how it's going to make you better understanding of someone else who maybe loses their job, and you'll be able to comfort the faint-hearted. You praise God for what the trials produce in your life, but you don't praise God for the trials. Those are bad, right? But you can praise God for how we're going to grow from them. So as we close today, how are we doing in these three essential relationships? Are we appreciating our pastors, our shepherds, tangible ways, respecting them, being at peace? Are we warning those who are going astray? Are we maximizing our sheep-sheep relationships? Are we forgiving those who have hurt us? Are we patient with those who might be taking a little bit longer to change than maybe we had expected? And then finally, are we maximizing and being intentional about our relationship with the Savior, praying, giving thanks, and trusting God in all areas of our lives. We do these things, and we'll be living in light of the return of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We just give you praise, and Lord, we thank you that Paul has made it so simple and clear as to how we can love our neighbor, how we can be intentional about loving and pouring into those who labor among us, and how we can be intentional about relating to those in our everyday relationships. And most importantly, how we can be intentional about our relationship with you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Worship Online. If you're in our area, we want to invite you to come to physically connect to your local church. We would love to help you to live and love like Jesus alongside of others who are doing the same. If you're from outside of our area, can I challenge you to find a local church in your area that's going to preach the Bible and exalt Jesus? Smash the like button, subscribe, share with friends, and turn on notifications if you'd like to stay up to date with us. And thanks again for joining us.